Okay, um, we are straight up at seven o'clock by my little uh, Apple Watch here. So we're, we'll start and there's a couple of folks still making their way in. I think there's some uh, ice water over there, some coffee too, if you'd like coffee. It's church coffee, it's not, it's not Jesus's coffee, but it's okay. <clears throat> one of my, one of my um, short-term goals here at First Community Church is to serve really good high-end coffee. If you'd like to contribute to that cause, let me know. Um, I'll, yes, applause. If you'd like to contribute to the Glen Miles Memorial Coffee Pot, we'll, um, Julie's back there waving her hand. Yes, please, 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 please. Okay, I hope, if, uh, just a reminder, the um, uh, outline for the class, the syllabus that we're following for this, uh, these six, six weeks uh, was over there on the desk if you need, if you need one, uh, where Robin is. Um, and I, I wanted to say a couple brief comments about, about this. Obviously, reading chapter 4 of Matthew all the way through verse 1 of chapter 11 means we're not going to cover every verse, verse by verse, um, in a one-hour class. This is really an overview kind of approach to, to all of this. I'm going to hit some stuff, uh, of course, from uh, Matthew 4.17 all the way to 11.1. Um, and we're going to spend a lot of time tonight on the, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is a, a key major teaching uh, of, of uh, Jesus, and a, a cent it's central to Matthew's um, theology and sets up everything else that comes, that comes later. So we'll get into that a little bit tonight. Um, I hope you bought, uh, if you were able to, hope you're able to uh, pick up a copy of um, Professor Hauerwas's book. Um, essentially, the reading assignment in here is whatever um, we're reading through in here. And you probably notice he follows each chapter in Matthew with his chapter. So chapter one in Hauerwas is chapter one in Matthew and so forth all the way through. Um, he does not do a traditional verse-by-verse uh, -verse biblical commentary, which some of you may be familiar with and have seen in the past. He does more of a theological overview. Uh, and you're getting a lot of preaching from him, and you're getting his very strong opinions, and you might find yourself going, I think that's crazy, and that's okay. Um, there are places in, in the margin where I've written no, or uh, I've got a question mark, or maybe. Um, in fact, I've even a couple of places where I wrote maybe, I came back in and said, well, yeah, okay. Um, uh, so that's, that's the whole idea, is you're really engaging with him in the, in the conversation. I'm gonna make some references that, that, and, to Haruwas tonight, as we did last week, and that'll be a part of, of, of what we do. All right, Stuart, let's go with the first slide <clears throat> to, to get into this tonight. Um, don't raise your hand or, or say anything, but I want, you to, I want you to ponder this question, and I especially want you to ponder this question uh, throughout the hour that we're in, involved in this, in this class tonight. Are you a follower of Jesus? If you were at a, at a dinner party Friday night, Cocktails are served, people are loosening up a little bit, conversations happening, and they say, oh, you know, I was watching um, the live stream from your service online the other day, on Sunday, and I saw you in the crowd. I didn't realize you were a church person. Do you follow Jesus? How do you answer that question? Is it a yes or is it a no? Is it a, well, um, yeah, but, you know, we're not like a fanatic about it. Uh, you know, that's, 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 that was kind of hard. I overheard one of my sons saying that several years ago to a friend. Are you, you guys Christians? You go to church all the time? Yeah, but we're not like fanatics. Well, you know, you know the, the, the short for fan, if you're a football fan, comes from the word fanatic. You know, I watched the Ohio State game last Saturday night. There were some fanatic Ohio State friends, fans in the stands in Dallas watching that game. Um, there were a few, I think, watching here. Uh, I did, I did for, I, I, what game was it? What, Julie, where's, where, my wife, my wife left already. Oh, there she is. Um, what game did we not go to 
it was the Rutgers game where it was pouring down, was pouring down rain. Went out to lunch with some friends and, and had a good time. And then we ran over to the, to the grocery store real quick and, and bought a couple of groceries. I think it was the clerks, the clerks, a couple of stock boys, and Julie and Glenn were the only ones in the entire um, uh, grocery store. Everyone else was home uh, uh, watching a game or at, at the game, I, I suppose. Well, that's a fanatic. That's a fan. We're not like fanatics. Of all, where are we? Um, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to your life um, uh, every day? Does, it, does, does, does this stuff that we're looking at enter into your brain? Do you think to yourself, oh, what would Jesus do? Remember that goes, came out with those little bracelets a while ago, what would Jesus do? And, and um, you know, when somebody would say, what would Jesus do? I'd say, uh, well, he'd probably do X. And remember, they killed him. Um, you know, it's kind of a way of softening the, uh, we're not fanatics about it. There's even a story in Hauerwas, if you read that far, uh, you know, with, from Clarence Jordan. Do you know that name? From Quenonia Farms in Georgia back in the day, back when um, the Civil Rights Act hadn't even been enacted yet. And Clarence Jordan had this multiracial farm that he was building and developing for poor people. It was awesome. And, and he was having um, death threats against his life. His brother was coming in to, to defend him. He was a lawyer. He's like, you know, I can only go so far. Well, are you a follower of Jesus or not? I, just, I think that's an intriguing question. And, and, and put this into it too. We're going to get this part a, a little bit later. Oh, no, no, I want to say this right now. <clears throat> what about the person who doesn't believe in God but follows Jesus? I, my, I, I don't know the congregation here well enough. I've met a couple of folks, uh, though, who fit this description here in our congregation who are self-described atheists, who attend our church, who pledge, who are engaged in the things we do. And they've said to me, this one person especially said to me, I go to your church because I really want to, the world to be like the world that Jesus wants us to create. Well, I, I, let me be really clear as your pastor, I'm thrilled that person's in our church. I, I, want, I, I want that person to be a part of, he doesn't believe in God, but he's technically following Jesus. Remember the story, I think it's in Mark, um, uh, Mark 9. A man brings his child before Jesus and, 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 and basically Jesus is kind of quizzing him. His child needs to be healed. And, and she, Jesus is essentially saying, well, do you believe or not? And what does the man say? Do you remember this text? What does the man say? Lord, I believe. Help, in the King James, help thou my unbelief. I did a funeral sermon. Uh, oh, more than two years ago now, I guess three years ago, for a leader in the church in Kansas City, um, a, a long-time leader. Uh, some of you know Bill Milkey, who just uh, died a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Um, it was a guy like Bill Milkey. was engaged at every level of the church, had been in the church his entire life, was even engaged in denominational leadership, was one of the board leaders of the denomination, had done all this stuff, was considered, I mean, sort of a saint of saints and just a solid, wonderful guy. And I was meeting with him about two weeks before he died, and he knew he was dying and kind of going over his plans. And he said, would it be okay if we read Mark 9, 24 at my funeral? Because that verse really describes who I am. And of course I said, absolutely. And of course we wove that into the, into the context of the service. Here's somebody whose basic belief was, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm full of doubt, I'm full of questions. I'm not sure what I do or don't believe. I want to believe, God help me. I, I love that, that his name was Wayne. I love that Wayne was that honest in that final time of his life. And he said, you know, he, he, really, he was really kind of worried. He said, Glenn, I don't want to get you in trouble if that's going to be. It's in the Bible for one thing. Um, so I shouldn't get in trouble if we're just quoting the Bible. Uh, but I think it's a beautiful thing. So 
Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you somebody who is willing to take this stuff seriously? That's kind of the question I want on our minds as we get into these, these texts on, on, on this night. All right. Um, let's go to, to Matthew uh, 4.18, which is the beginning of this, this second section that we're, we're, we're in this evening. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. You hear the word? You hear the instruction? Follow me. Not believe in me. Not here's my theological propositional understanding of how God reacts with the world. First of all, there's the Trinitarian formula. There's none of that stuff from Jesus. By the way, as, as a good Christian church, Disciples of Christ kid, growing up in that denomination, when somebody would ask us, what do you believe about the Trinity? Our smart aleck answer is, what's the Trinity? Um, and then when somebody says, well, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh, well, sure, where's that in the Bible? You can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Trinitarian understanding, maybe. That's, I'm sorry, that's more than you wanted to know. <clears throat> Follow me. Nothing in there about belief. Nothing there about you have to think like this. None of that stuff follow. Be along with me on the journey. What was the, one of the first names of the early church? They didn't call themselves churches. Well, they kind of did. They used the word ecclesia, gathering, which we later translated and turned it into church. They were called people of the way. You know, that's from John 14, you know, on the way, the truth, and life. People of the way. We're following in the way of Jesus. We're trying to live out this, these teachings uh, for, for real. And note, note this. Immediately, verse 20, they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, etc. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. That's really the, 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 um, the absolute beginning of Jesus' ministry is about Jesus inviting people to follow. They don't, and we'll find out as we read through Matthew, they won't have the answers. They don't understand things. They're confused about things. Peter, one moment is, blessed are you, Peter, for your confession. And then um, two or three verses later, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, there's this, this constant ebb and flow of, oh, well, they figured out, then they don't figure it out, etc. It seems to me, from what Matthew is trying to present to us, is Matthew really wants us to be followers of the way, followers of these teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, slide number two. <clears throat> This is from Hauerwas. The sermon is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. I think Hauerwas is spot on here. What, he's, what this sermon is doing is not creating a new sense of the law, a new sense of the, here is how we must behave, but rather a description of what it's like in this community of faith. For example, think of the Lord's Prayer, which we'll look at in a, in a little bit. What's one of the things we say in that, in that Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts, in Matthew, as we forgive our debtors. Would we, I still always have to think, I have to read it here because it's different. Would we say trespasses here? Yeah. We say trespasses here. I have to read the Lord's Prayer because for the previous 35 years, it's been debts. You might remember my second Sunday, I mentioned that in a sermon, said, if you see me with my eyes open praying when I'm, I'm actually reading the Lord's Prayer because we say it differently here, and I, I must have had 157 people say, could we change it to debts? That's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, um, <laughs> Um, uh, that, that group's going to meet over in the corner later. You guys can uh, come up with a decision. Um, think about that for a minute. Do we mean that literally? I mean, the word in Greek means debt. Forgive stuff people owe you as you're forgiven stuff you owe others. It's not always money. No, it's not always money. Of course it's not. But sometimes it is. 
And I forget the German word. Anybody speak German? What's the German word for debt? No German speakers here? I could have made it up. Uh, what, what's it? Schulda. And that's the word that's used in the German version of the Lord's Prayer, I think. And it has a financial implication to it. It's fascinating to me that we kind of don't pay attention to that. Um, uh, but I, I, it's also fascinating to me that if we really take this seriously, that would have a political implication. Would it not? In our society, if we began forgiving debts and bills to folks? One of the most Christian persons ever known in my life was my grandfather, Robert Small. The R in my name is for Robert. And that's my, I'm named after my grandfather, Robert Small. My mom wanted to call me Robert. My dad wanted to call me Glenn. So they compromised and called me Robert Glenn. Um, and I got called Glenn by my parents. And every teacher I had from first grade through 12th grade would get to the first day of class and go, is Bobby Miles here? No, it's Glenn. <clears throat> my grandfather uh, was ready and willing to help anyone. He was a follower of Jesus. Now, he and I disagreed about a lot of stuff. He was wrong about some things. Uh, but he was a follower of Jesus. And when Julie and I got out of college and my dentist said, you know, you really need some braces. We didn't have any money. We both had full-time jobs. We were barely scraping by paycheck to paycheck. We weren't making any money. We could barely afford to pay for the dog and the cat that we had. We weren't going to have kids yet, for sure. So I called my grandfather up and said, Grandpa, it's going to cost $1,200. By the way, can you imagine a full set of braces today for $1,200? That'd be like one brace, you know. <clears throat> Grandpa said, here's what I'll do. I'll write you the check so you can get the best deal with the orthodontist. Take that check into the orthodontist, and you pay me back $100 a month over the next year. Is that fair? I said, Grandpa, that's awesome. I, just, I, just, I don't have the money now. It was going to be 1800 or something if we did it on a payment plan with him. So that's great. Gave Dennis a check. Julie wrote a check faithfully to my grandfather, Robert Small, $100 every month. And in the 11th month, he called up and said, I'm forgiving the last month. Well, that's a pretty cool thing. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of a grandparent way of, of teaching a lesson of, you know, I gave you a loan, interest-free. You did a good job of paying me back. And then I just forget the last $100. That's my little present to you. That's kind of a nice thing. But if we take that Lord's Prayer literally, I don't want to, but if we take it literally, it says forgive all those kinds of things. So just, just play with that a little bit because it's really, this, there's a lot of tension in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a ton of tension in here. What Jesus wants us to see, though, is that these aren't rules. These aren't hard, fast rules to live by. That whole thing about debts that I just said is really open to lots of interpretation and conversation and discussion. For example, there's justice issues involved. If somebody steals, if, if somebody steals $1,000 from Buck Byrne, I want to see Buck get that money back. If somebody, if somebody steals Tom White's car, I want to see Tom get his car back. You know, they, they don't just, just say that, well, I'm a Jesus follower, so God bless you. You know, just, just take and just keep taking. So there's also justice rolled into this, but it's fascinating to think, what does this mean within the community of faith? These rules aren't for the whole world outside of the church. It's for us in this community of people who are following Jesus. Here's how we're to live with each other. You see how much more specific that, that, that gets. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, my friend Mark, he's a good, good pastor, he's in a church in, in um, uh, Virginia. Uh, when he was at a church in Indiana, right out of seminary, he memorized the, Lord's, or the uh, Sermon on the Mount, start to finish, whole thing. Took him about 22 minutes to present it to his congregation. Instead of a sermon that day, he said, today I'm going to give you the Sermon on the Mount. These are Jesus' words. And he went through the whole thing, all that stuff in there about prayer and loving your enemies and, and uh, all that stuff. 
And afterwards, this old elder in the church, a longtime board leader in his church, there were 12 elders elected to serve for life. And this guy had about, was on about his third life. Um, he, was, he was older than God. And he came through the line. He just said, Mark, Pastor Mark, it's a good thing you told us those were Jesus' words or you'd be in trouble today. And I think that's an absolutely true story. If we really actually listen to these words that Jesus teaches, it's pretty challenging. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty tough stuff. Uh, um, all right. Uh, look at verse, well, I'll give you a couple examples of these. Uh, 527 and 531. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Um, who's famous for quoting that uh, scripture? Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. It gave, I was in Bible college then, I shouldn't tell you this. Keep on going. Hey, what's the, hey what, was, what was President Carter saying? I think it was when he was running for office is when he got interviewed by Playboy and he, and he said this. What he was trying to say was, I take Jesus' teaching seriously. Politically, it was probably a stupid thing to say. On the other hand, I have great admiration for the fact that he said it. I, I think that he acknowledged out loud, you know, this is a thing, this is a thing. And one, one could even say, if you go to Hebrews, where the Hebrews writer says in the book of, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrew church says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. I know it seems weird to think of Jesus as being tempted with lust, but part of what this text is saying is, this is what normal people experience. This is not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. Maybe you don't want to talk about it in front of a Bible study group sometime. But on the other hand, this is part of what life is. And, and here's, here's the thing that, that Jesus, I think, is really getting at here. And then I'll say this about 531 too. 531, he says, you know, um, um, this is where people misconfuse. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him, let him give her a, a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. There's been millions of really bad things written about this these two texts. Tons of stuff. The one about lust has been used, especially in more rigid kinds of, uh, theolo theologically rigid kinds of churches to, to attack people, to put people down, and to really come after them. Um, do you remember Jimmy Swaggart? Remember Jimmy Swaggart back in the 80s? And he, like every sermon, I watched him on TV because frankly he was pretty entertaining. Every sermon dealt with pornography and lust. And what happened to Jimmy Carter? Or Jimmy Carter, Jimmy, Jimmy Swaggart. He got arrested with a prostitute in the car with a pile of pornography ne ne next to her. Obviously, he was dealing with his own stuff every Sunday. I mean, it was like every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday. Uh, when Julie and I were in high school, we, we, we attended this small uh, private Christian high school, and, and, and uh, traveling evangelist Leroy came through our, our little town, and he preached to all these kids. And he stood up and he said, Now, I know that you young people, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and you young people have lustful thoughts in your heart. I had, we had assigned seats, and I was sitting on the front row next to my best friend, Dave Trenum. I leaned over to Trenum and go, I knew that. I didn't need the Holy Spirit to tell me. <laughs> but it was being used as a, as a way of controlling us and yelling us and making us feel bad and keeping us and putting us down. And then the text on, on, on divorce also has been used as a way for the preacher or the leaders of the church to have power and control. In, at First Baptist Church in Atlanta where Charles Stanley, and I'm saying his name out loud, where Charles Stanley was the preacher, if you got a divorce, you were told you will no longer serve in this church. You could still attend, 
You can still pledge, but you can't be a leader. You can't be any, teach a Sunday school class. You can't do anything. And then when we were there in Atlanta, Mr. Stanley got divorced from his wife. His wife divorced him, left him. Do you know what his sermon was about the next Sunday? Forgiveness. <laughs> Forgiveness. What Jesus is doing in these texts is he's moving the Jesus follower community. Okay, if we can call it that. He's moving them away from patriarchal, male-dominated, women-do-what-we-tell-them-to-do ways of being. He's moving them out of that into a much more inclusive thing. It's not about making a law that's impossible to follow. It's not about, even, even Jimmy Carter, to a certain degree, misunderstood what Jesus was, was getting at. What he was getting at here was, was, look, in this community, we don't treat each other as things. In this community, men are not to use women for their own pleasure or desire or whatever, and then just throw them away. Remember we talked a little bit about um, Joseph last week how he could just write his, his, I think it was Deuteronomy 23, says, hey, if your wife um, sleeps with somebody before, when you're engaged, before you get married, and she's your fiance, write her a note, send her away. If you don't like something your wife does, write her a note, send her away. And, and that leads for the woman to uh, either slavery, prostitution, or death. Basically, Jesus is turning that whole thing upside down and saying, no, in our society, we don't live that way. We don't treat each other that way. It's, it's making it tougher for the divorce to happen so that the full community can constantly be together. I hope that makes some sense. I'm going to give you some time tonight for um, <clears throat> follow-up on, on questions. I, I, I promise I will. Now, let's look at, uh, so what did this group look like? Here's slide uh, four. Next, next slide, sir. <clears throat> Too often we fail to recognize our accommodation to worldly powers because we fear losing our, our wealth. Um, this is part of the issue that's being dealt with in, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is this whole collection of different ways of being with each other and with the world. And it doesn't fit in exactly with the way the culture worked then or the way the culture works now. Now, I like our culture. I'm an American. I've talked about that before. On 9-11, I put a flag out on my garage door. I go to Fourth of July parties and celebrate being, a, being an American. It's an important part of who I am. But the way Jesus followers understand themselves is their first loyalty is not to the current culture they're in or the world, but to Jesus. And then they reflect on that culture in light of Jesus' teachings. And the first thing, maybe, no, maybe you don't do it, the first thing I do when I really pay attention to this stuff is I start to think about, but I like my car. And I, I like having a full cable package. Cost me $12.99 to watch my University of California Bears on Saturday, but I got to watch that game. I like having money to be able to afford that. I, I, like, I like Julie and I went to dinner Sunday night. Sunday night's our date night. We had a nice steak. I like being able to do that. But if I'm giving my coat away or if I'm seeing somebody in need and doing all I can to help that person, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan is in the Gospel of Luke. I'm preaching on that this Sunday. You know, do you remember what the Good Samaritan does? This is another Jesus story. You know what he does? He essentially hands the, the innkeeper his wallet and says, I've got a gold MasterCard, or what's a, what's a, a platinum uh, American Express? D take that, pay for all the bills. I'll come back in a couple of months and pick up my card. This is before electronic transfer. They had to use the actual card. <clears throat> 
So it's really, it's really a challenge to, to, to put, these, put these laws into practice. Look at 543. Told you we were going to spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For God makes God's sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word for perfect, by the way, in Greek is teleos. It means complete. It means whole. It means well-rounded. I don't know why translators continue to use that word perfect because other than maybe it just keeps us preachers uh, having to con constantly explain. It doesn't mean be perfect. It means be complete, well-rounded, have a full, full life. But did you hear that, what it, what it said? If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't just love those who love you. Who do you love? You love your enemies. I heard, heard Barbara Brown Taylor once say in a sermon, Love your enemies. I can barely love my neighbor, let alone my own family. I love my enemy. But here's the thing. In the first 300 years of the church, before Emperor Constantine made it the law, the religious law of the land, if a Roman soldier became a Christian, what did he do with his sword? Anybody know? He gave it back in or he turned it into a plowshare. He refused to kill another. That was a dangerous thing for a Roman soldier to do. And yet the church exploded with growth. Constantine becomes emperor. He kind of likes Christianity, likes the religion. He makes it the official religion of the land. He baptizes all of his army. What does the army do when they're being baptized? If you do know this story, pull out their sword, hold it up in the air, walk into the river, go all the way down, head underneath the water for their baptism, but they keep their sword out. Constantine read Matthew 5. He knew what it said. He was clear. Uh, what, what's, what's the movie with the, um, with the um, it's, in, it's in my notes somewhere, the, the young man who enlists, he won't pick up a rifle, but he'll be a medic. It was a, it was a Mel Gibson movie. What's that movie called? Say it again. Anyway, it's a great movie. Um, uh, I, I love that movie, you know, and that, that young man refuses to, to pick up a weapon. He won't even touch a rifle in basic training. He won't even learn the basics of, of it at all. And yet he becomes the hero of the show, and, and, and Mel Gibson, in, in typical overwrought style, even has him coming um, uh, off the battlefield, uh, standing underneath a water shower and with his arms out and blood washing off. It's an obvious reference to Christ. Um, uh, Gibson just can't help just hammering over it, with what it when he's trying to make a point in a, in a movie. It's a great, a great movie and a, and, a, and a beautiful story. Again, somebody who understands it. If we run all of our wars through this teaching, how many wars do we support? It's a, it's a hard question, isn't it? What, what do we do with Hitler? Dietrich Bonhoeffer eventually decided there had to be uh, Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, one of the few Christian pastors in Germany who resisted Hitler, decided, you know, we, we, we've probably got to try to kill him. He, he's a pacifist. No way he wanted to do that, but he decided, boy, he's killing millions. We've got to do something. That, that, that's an extreme account. What else? Who else? How else? Are, are wars always moral battles, or are there financial things behind it? 
I mean, so just, I, I'm not trying to answer, well, I'm kind of trying to stir it up a little bit. Um, but what I want you to do is, is think about how hard this is to take seriously. If we practice this in everything we do, holy cow, this is a whole new way of living and being together. And that's essentially what Jesus wants to talk about. All right, go to the next slide. Um, uh, I think it's number four. Uh, here's, so here's three things I want you to see from Hauerwas that I think is really important that we understand what Jesus is doing here, or at least the way Matthew is shaping it for us. Number one, this was a voluntary society. You could not be born into it. That is huge. In antiquity, if you were born into a slave's family, boom, you're a slave. There's not much you can do about that. If you're born, born into a military family, boom, you're a military family forever. If you're born into a certain style, a certain family does, if you're like Joseph, the, Jesus was, was the carpenter's son. Jesus was probably a carpenter, a tecton, a skilled day laborer he, he might have been, etc. That's who you are. There's no, there's no go to college and learn something. Don't go to rabbi school and figure out none of that kind of stuff at all. In this society, in this Jesus follower society, the ecclesia, the gathering, the church as it's known, you're not born into it. You're welcomed into it. Second slide, Stuart. Another one from Hauerwas. It was a society that, counter to all precedent, was mixed in its composition. What does that mean? There were prostitutes. There were, there were slaves. There were tax collectors. There were Pharisees, wealthy men. There were zealots. Zealots, by the way, followers of Jesus, who believed in a military takeover of, of, of Israel, of Palestine, kicking the Romans out. They were guys with their actual swords who were followers of Jesus. Imagine those conversations going on around the campfire with the followers of Jesus. All the, anyone and everyone was welcome in this group. There was no requirement about who could be in according to where you were born, whether you were wealthy, educated, or somewhere in between and all, all the rest. That's the beauty and the power of the church. I think that's why it exploded in growth the first, first 300 years. Next slide, please, Stuart. When he called his society together, Jesus gave its members a new a way to, to live life. A new way, a new way to life to live. A new way to live life, it should say. It's my mistake. A new way to live life. And this is what I've, this is what I've been, been trying to say tonight in this, in this first 30 minutes, is that this is what this is about. It's not a new legalistic system of law. It's an invitation to a new way to be alive in the world and that something that we then um, share with each other together. All right, let's go to the, let's go to the Lord's Prayer, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. And whenever you pray, do not be like, 6, six 5, if you're there, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I've, I've, I've told you about um, too much. I'm going to tell you too much more again. When I was in seminary, um, I went to this very conservative seminary, great school. Biblical studies were off the chart. Awesome. Two years of Hebrew, or two years of Greek, a year of Hebrew. We learned the Bible. Theologically, I uh, was a little weaker. Um, did my, my doctoral work at Claremont and got a lot more theology there. It was a good combo. Lots of Bible, lots of theology. Um, I, I th thought it was a good combo. But what I would do at, at the school in the lunch, in the lunch break, you know, very, very serious, sincere um, friends of mine who, who would always, always, no matter what they brought for lunch, would stop and pray. 
over there, you know, silently over there. And you know what I would do? I would go and get right next to their face. <laughs> so, that, so that when they opened their eyes, I'd be right there. It was, again, kind of a smart aleck thing to do. And I didn't tell the search committee about that, by the way, when I interviewed for this job. And it got to the point where people were praying with one eye open looking for Glenn. Where is Glenn? Is he going to do that again? Now, now a semi-serious one, um, a story. My son, Nate, my oldest son, I've told you this in a sermon. Maybe not all of you have heard this. He's an atheist. He's a pretty smart kid. He knows the Bible pretty well. His best friends in Kansas City are a group of conservative Christians who uh, get together every Sunday night to watch Game of Thrones or to watch some movie on HBO or some movie that they get off of Netflix or just hang out and be together. And he really likes them. And we love that those are his friends because they're good folks and they're, they're great folks, as a matter of fact. Um, but they got into a conversation one day about praying over your, your meal. And the friends were saying, well, you know, it's about a witness and providing a witness so that people will know that we're people of faith and we're not trying to show off or anything. And Nate, who knows his Bible, goes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, go into your closet and shut the door and pray in secret. And why do you think Jesus says that, by the way? I mean, he kind of gives you a hint in the text. Why do you think he says that? Don't want you to be a hypocrite. The people who pray in public and put on a big show, oftentimes wearing robes, the Pharisees and Sadducees would, with stoles, does this sound familiar? With religious degrees and backgrounds and education. Look at how well I can pray. I have they even turn on their praying voice. Did you see an article in the New York Times of the day about the rabbi voice? You know, you hear that in preachers too. Preachers that, oh, today I'd like to talk to you about, you know, you get this kind of fake voice going on. Jesus is talking about that, but he's also talking about if if it's just you and, and God, well, you, you don't need to be out in public doing something. I mean, there's public prayers that are appropriate, of course. But if it's just you and God, there's something about going to your closet, shutting the door, and just emptying out your heart and soul. There's just something about that. I've witnessed that a couple of times, extemporaneously, wasn't planned. Heard somebody praying in a, in a hospital room once. I'd gone in to see, it was a, a, a two-bedroom. Gone in to see somebody who wasn't there. They were off having tests or something. So I took out one of my cards and was writing a note saying, I'm sorry to miss you. I said a prayer for you while I was here. I'll, I'll try to come back and see it again tomorrow. Uh, God bless, God's blessings to you, something like that. And while I'm writing that note, the woman in the bed, you know, with the curtain pulled, doesn't know I'm there. And I can hear her weeping. And I can hear her saying, God, I don't want to die. I can, I can hear her saying, I'm so scared. Would you say something? Would you answer me? Would you, please, God. And she swore a little bit, and she cried, and she broke down, and she just broke down into a, a, a pool of tears. That's praying. She wouldn't do it. She wasn't showing off. And I, she wasn't trying to, oh, uh, thank you for being here, Pastor. Uh, may I pray? Lord, I know in your mercy that you'll, no. It was just gut-wrenching, heartbreaking mind-bending, open, honest prayer. I'm scared to death. Where are you? That's what Jesus is getting at. And it doesn't have to be a life 
thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, my life's in turmoil. It might just be, it might just be, holy cow, my husband's making me insane. Um, uh, don't raise your hand if that one, if that's you. It, it, it might be, it might be, holy cow, I'm going nuts at work. Or it might be, you know, boy, there's so many different options that I have in my life. I don't know what to do next. And I'm so worried about, or maybe I'm so worried about my kids or I'm worried about my mom and my dad or my grandparents or whatever it is. I got a prayer concern today about somebody who's worried about their mom and worried about their grandkids and, and in between all the stuff that we're all, holy cow, that's, that's what God wants, is that open, honest. Jesus is trying to create a community of faith that's about us bringing our whole selves to it in such a way that the world really, really hadn't seen ever, ever before. <clears throat> all right, uh, slide, slide seven. The forgiveness of debt signals that nothing is quite so political as the prayer that Jesus teaches us. I kind of got into that a, a, a little bit earlier and, and, and talked about the politicalness of this. Go to the next slide, um, please, if you would. The only advantage the disciples have is that they are able to acknowledge their sinfulness, and in that acknowledgement, they are able to embody through community the life of forgiveness. That's a long, wordy quote, but to hear what he's saying, the disciples don't have any advantage over the rest of the world. They're not better than or, you know, have found, this, oh, hey, we're so much better, except the single thing. They know they need forgiveness, and they know they're called to forgive. And that's the identifying factor. That's, that is at the heart of who we are. We are people who are willing to say, I'm sorry. And in response, we say, I forgive you. Now again, back, back to, 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 to Tom and, and to Buck. You know, Buck's lost his $1,000 and Tom's lost his car. And, and that doesn't mean that you just, oh, no, no worries. No, the act of forgiveness makes, is an act of honesty. The person asking for forgiveness isn't saying, hey, just forget about it. The person asking for forgiveness is acknowledging the wrongdoing. I know somebody who got a, a, a note from their child. They haven't spoken to their child the, in, in 10 years at least, maybe 11. Uh, it's a, a mother who's in her 70s, hadn't spoken to her daughter. Her daughter hasn't spoken to her. Out of the blue, the woman, the mother, got a note saying, just want you to know I've forgiven you. And, and the woman said to me, I just wanted to call her up and go, for what? what? <laughs> I didn't, I mean, maybe we've, obviously we haven't been talking, but can, you just can't out, that's a one, do you see how one-sided that is? And it's also sort of being, uh, condemning the other person without the chance for there to be an open, honest conversation about what the issue really is. Because if you care about each other enough, then that's what you're going to do. You're going to be willing to say that to the other. I messed up. I blew it. I want you to know I'm sorry. And that's where that, you can then redevelop the relationship. And that takes days, weeks, months, years, sometimes even, uh, depending on how, how, how difficult that, that moment was. Um, all right, um, in the Lord's Prayer. I wanted to look at one more thing in the Lord's Prayer. Sorry, while, while we're on this. <clears throat> Notice uh, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we, uh, 6.12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I just want you to see that this is, this is not a quid pro quo kind of of legal engagement here. This is, this is that gut-level, heart-wrenching conversation that you have with another person that you've wronged or has wronged you, and you both display the willingness to rebuild that relationship. That verse really defines, it's kind of almost at the center, at least theologically, of everything that's going on in, in, in this text. 
<clears throat> okay, um, go to the next slide. Like the disciples, it is necessary for the church to recognize that we too are of little, are, are, are of little faith. Um, let's flip on ahead to Matthew 8, 10 now. When Jesus heard him, this is Jesus healing a centurion servant, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. All right, so we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. I skipped over the stuff about judgment and all that. If you want to hear that stuff, that was in my sermon last Sunday, which was on judgment. Um, now we're getting into the sort of, all right, this community is being formed. Here's Jesus out in the world. Here's some things that are happening. Here's a healing that happens. And, and who is this? A centurion. Who's a centurion? Some, say it. A Roman. A Roman what? Soldier. He's a centurion. That means he's in charge of 100, of 100 men, right? 100 soldiers. He's got some power, okay? The Roman army is there in Israel. Why? They're the occupying army. They are the enemy. Now, I talked a little bit last week about how Herod had really done some good work when he was alive, and uh, the, Herod the Great had done all this stuff, and what a good politician he was, and, and there was this relative calm and peace between Rome and Israel. But now, 30 uh, years later, things have gotten even tougher and more difficult, and, and Jesus is, is, is dealing with a lot of stuff and seeing a lot of stuff happening, and a centurion. This is an enemy. This is, this is France, 1942. And Jesus is an itinerant preacher wandering through Paris. And a Nazi officer comes up to him and says, could you heal my child? And then Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this anywhere in Christian France. That's how you have to hear this story. You know, we read it and go, oh, the centurion, he had faith. We should have faith too. Let's all be faithful, good people, followers of Jesus, who have faith and believe, etc." No. I mean, yes, but... What, what Matthew wants us to see, what Jesus is doing, is so radically in, in, inclusive, it had to freak people out. I can guarantee you, I mean, you get a little bit of my theology here, but that's too bad. Uh, I can guarantee you there's a conversation somewhere on the side among folks going, what is this? He just welcomed a Nazi officer into his, into his setting, and he healed that SOB's, and I'm using that on purpose, that SOB's son? While we're organizing to try to get these people out of our country, who does he think he is? That's really the way we got to see this story. That's how radical this is. That's how unusual this is. This Sunday when I talk about the Good Samaritan, it's almost like the Good Nazi. Or as I said a year ago in a sermon here, uh, <clears throat> the Good Al-Qaeda member. And it makes me, I start to sweat as soon as I say those things out loud because it, I'm not sure I want that. I'm not sure I want to follow a Lord who says, well, this Nazi, I've not seen faith in all of your church like this, Glenn. Look at this Nazi and the way he's, he's believing, trusting. What Jesus wants us to do is see everything in the context of heaven and to see the world through those eyes. Now, would Jesus also work to fight against the Nazis in terms of the racism and the, all that stuff, the white supremacy that still is alive in the United States of America? I believe absolutely. So, of course, there are justice issues here at work. But in that moment, with that child, it wasn't about any of that. It was about doing what was necessary, even though 
I guarantee you there was somebody already organizing. We got to get this guy out of here. We got to kill him. He's going to get in our way. That's how, that's how radically inclusive it is. I think the next slide <clears throat> should say something about uh, the love of God. Uh, that's not the one I wanted. Leave that one up there, though. Leave, leave that one up there. I'll, I'll, I'll just go on right to that, that one. Um, leave that slide up for me, Stuart, if you would. And, and folks, go to Matthew 9, uh, 9 to 13. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called uh, Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. What word did you hear there? Did you hear it? Follow me. Sitting at the tax booth. And he got up and followed him. And he sat at dinner in the house where many tax collectors and sinners and were, came and were eating with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and, and sinners? Skip down to verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Um, the key here in that text is back to what is connected back to what we were talking about a moment ago, healing of the centurion's son. The key to understanding this is the way Jesus is so radically inclusive. Remember what I said earlier about um, he had a zealot, Simon the zealot was one of his disciples, and he also had Matthew, the tax collector, who we just learned about. Politically speaking, this one would be an extremely as far to the right conservative Republican as you could get, and the other one would be an extremely far to the left liberal Democrat as you could get. And they're both, those are generalizations for Jesus' day, but to make the point, they're both followers of Jesus. Is that uncomfortable? Heck yeah. Is it uncomfortable today? If you, if you can't stand President Trump and you're sitting across the table from somebody wearing a red Make America Great hat again, is that, is that going to be a hard conversation at Thanksgiving? Darn right it is. Maybe you might agree not to have that conversation. Jesus has those people sitting with him at dinner, at their meal, making the point again about how important it is in Jesus' community, in this, these followers of Jesus, to sit down together at a meal. Tax collectors, I don't care. Zealots, I don't care. Prostitutes, whoever. Sinners, now notice Jesus doesn't call any person a sinner. That's a word that he's using that the Pharisees use. But he's like, yeah, sure, they're sinners, fine. And then he quotes from Hosea, that's a quote from Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sounds interesting. It comes from the prophet Hosea. In, in the Hebrew, the word for mercy is chesed. It literally means uh, a loving kindness or love that goes on forever. And then you hear the word sacrifice in Hosea's day. What did you do if you were going to worship God? What was part of your act of worship? You, you might bring a lamb. If you were wealthy, you'd bring a cow. If you were poor, you'd bring a dove. And you'd offer that as a gift to the, to the temple, and then it would be sacrificed. Essentially, the, the early priests in Israel were butchers. You know, you bring a, somebody would bring a, a dove, and they'd be like, okay, dove, thank you. Um, somebody would bring a, 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 a heifer, a, a cow, and they'd be like, hey, steak tonight. Thank you very much. This is great. Um, honestly, that was what the food was, and they didn't just slaughter them, throw them out the back. The, 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 the food that was brought was slaughtered and used the way to, to feed that, that community. Uh, um, um, what, what Hosea is saying is, in Hosea's day, they were 
forgetting everything. They were walking away from poor people. They were stepping on the backs of poor people. The rich were getting richer while the 90% rest were getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Their, their practice was terrible. They, they, they were rude, offensive. They didn't welcome the stranger in. They kicked out refugees, all this stuff. It was like nuts. And Hosea is this hard line preacher is going, what God desires is not your sacrifice, not your proper worship. Because what they would say is, oh, look, God's upset with us because we're not welcoming everybody. Well, let's have a really nice worship service. And Hosea is going, it's not about the worship service. I mean, pay attention to that, but it's not about it. What God desires is mercy, chesed, steadfast love, ongoing love, eternal love, love that lasts forever. I want a community, Hosea was saying, where love is at the center of everything you do. Jesus says, go back and read Hosea. That's what he wants. He wants a community that's based on love. Not based on who wrote the biggest check, not based on who gives the most, not based on who's, who's got the best skill for leading worship or preaching or, or, or organizing the choir. Or any of that. All those things are important. I, they're important to me. It's part of my livelihood, of course. But what Jesus ultimately desires is that at the center of all of that is the practice of chesed, an ongoing love for each other, a love that is more than willing to make room for the other, no matter what they do or don't, don't need. Um, <clears throat> Okay, one more. Uh, I wanted to say something. Leave that up there still because I think that's the next text. Matthew 10, 34. Ah, yes, that is. Thank you. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Whenever I get into theological conversations with some of my brothers and sisters on the other side of the um, theological fence, um, they will sit there and I'll start talking about, you know, the first 300 years of the church, Roman soldiers would give up their, their swords. They would, they'd become pacifists. The early Christians were pacifists. They didn't, they didn't go to war. They just couldn't, they couldn't line up Jesus. They all, then they always quote this verse to me. Oh, I didn't bring, come to bring peace, come to bring a sword. What Hauerwas wants you to see, and he quotes, he's actually quoting Bonhoeffer here, the sword has, he has brought, that Jesus has brought, the sword that is an alternative to the peace of the world is the sword of the cross. It's the cross that cuts through um, the stuff. <laughs> it's the clean word cross cuts through. It's a, in the book, in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer describes it as a double-edged sword. It's a cross that really gets to the heart of the matter. Obviously, it's metaphorical here. And when you, when you follow in the, Jesus in the way of the cross, and this came up in the text earlier. You should have read it if you read through tonight, for tonight. It might even break up families. You know, there was a church in Kansas City called the Family Church, First Family Church. And their, even their logo was a picture of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and two little kids running. That was their logo. It was a nice logo, attractive. What's it saying? If you don't have a family like this, we're not your church. Now, they didn't, they didn't want that to be, to be said. Jesus said, if you're really going to follow, it's going to disrupt your family. It, it, this is hard stuff. This is really hard stuff. We almost, we almost in our culture make an idol of the family. Now, I want strong, healthy families, and we've got classes coming for parents in our youth ministry, all that, all that matters, of course. But what Jesus is saying is, sometimes, if you're really going to take this, it's going to be hard on your family. It's going to be hard on your relationship. 
There's a great story told by Will Willimon, who is Harawas's best friend. They've co-written a couple of books together. Willimon used to be the, the chaplain at Duke University. And he preached a, a ton on justice and making the world right and bringing, helping poor people out. And there was this girl, who, this young woman student who came to all their, their, his sermons and heard him preach for throughout her entire three years. Is it three years for medical school? How long do you go to that? Four, four years. So for four years, she's in medical school at Duke, pretty good school. She's hearing uh, Professor Willimon preach every Sunday about caring for the world and following Jesus and doing all this. And she announces to her father uh, when she's about to finish her residency that she's going to serve three years in Haiti on some voluntary force, and, you know, she'll have food and, and, and lodging. And her dad just goes nuts. Who put this stupid idea in your head? And she said, Jesus. <laughs> and now he goes really crazy, and he flies to Duke, and he finds Will Willimon. He said, are you the one putting this stuff in my daughter's head? And you know what Willimon said? He said, no, it's Jesus. And you see how following Jesus disrupted that woman's family? He wanted her to go off and get on her career and get going and, and do well and, and all those things. And you, can, you don't have to go to Haiti if you're a doctor. I, I, you know, although I could, Terry Davis is sitting right here. He goes to Kenya, does all kinds of amazing things. I've seen that in his life and seen it in other doctors' lives that I know. But for some families, that's disruptive. That's what this verse means about Jesus didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus came in, this, in the light of the cross to, to turn the world upside down in a way that says, no, it's chesed. It's steadfast love. It's mercy and kindness that matters more than, than anything else. All right. I think I have one more slide. Yet the status of Jesus is not easily recognized. We say all this stuff, and yet, even still, this is, a, this is from chapter 11, verse 1. one and, uh, I kind of got a little bit into verse 2 and a couple more verses after that to get set up for next week. It's the famous text where John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we be looking for somebody else? Here's John the Baptist who 10 chapters, eight chapters before baptizes Jesus. Oh my God, you're the son, you're the one. This is the, you're the Messiah. Uh, you, should be, you should be baptizing me and all, all that beautiful stuff earlier in Matthew. And now 10 chapters later John the Baptist is full of doubt. doubt. Are, you, are you really the one? Is this, is, this really, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? Is this really how we're supposed to? And that's part of that, that's part of that stuff I was talking about early, at the very beginning. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's, it's, it's a way for Matthew, in the beautiful way he's telling the story, to let us know that he understands this is hard that the Sermon on the Mount is like crazy hard. And choosing to go to Haiti for three years when your family thinks you ought to be going right into your new practice and you ought to be buying the house and doing the stuff and getting a mortgage like everyone else and having a, having a husband and 2.3 kids and a dog like everyone else does. Following Jesus is hard. It, and so we do all that, we do all the right stuff, and you pray in your closet, and you love your enemy, and you do these things, and then you go see the doctor, and the doctor says, by the way, you have brain cancer. And you wonder, is it, are you the, all right. Um, that's a tough note to, let, to end on. Uh, we'll get into more of that next week at the beginning of the class next week, but I, I wanted to promise you uh, some time. So it's 7.54. We've got six minutes for any, any questions. If you've got a question, stand up, raise your hand. I'll call on you and then stand up and give the question real nice and loud so that we can, uh, I can respond and we can all hear. Any questions? Right, right back there, please. Please. 
I'm wondering about the Lord's Prayer, the ending that we use, for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory. That's not included there in, in Matthew. Right. Can you... And we have, and we have a different version in Luke from Matthew's version, and we have a variety of versions in churches around the country, around the world. Some use debts, some use trespasses, etc. What it speaks to is, is um, uh, the fact that there wasn't this monolithic, here is everything the church must do, now go and do this and follow us exactly like this, and this is how it's going to be done. Uh, that can be found in the Gospels. Instead, we have Oh, kind of here's Matthew's view, and here's Luke's view, and here's Mark's view. For example, with, with the gospel of Mark, the way Mark's gospel goes, um, I think what Mark is saying at the end, we don't actually have a resurrection in the ancient manuscript of Mark's gospel. There's no resurrection story. Just he's killed, and by the way, do you remember he promised he'd come back? And Mark is almost saying, do you believe it or not? And are you going to follow him? Um, so we have all these different, uh, and John is... John is your crazy uncle at, at Thanksgiving that no one wants to talk to. Um, you know, he's got this whole wide, widely different view. So uh, the, the simple answer that I'm not giving very well is that it's all over the place and it's reflected even in our own culture. Yes, please. That I don't know. I'll look that up and see if I have an answer for you next week. And I don't want to say anything about Catholics because I don't necessarily have a great understanding of all their practices and, and, and such. So I'll, I'll see if I can check that out and see what I can find. Essentially what it reflects though is that diversity. I mean, it's, even our own Bible has two different versions. It's like Luke's church said, this is the right one. And Matthew's church said, you people are wrong. This, this is the right one. So even at, at the very beginning, there was a little dispute over that. All right, there's another question. Right here, Randall. Oh, good. Yes. Uh, obviously, we don't follow uh, all of the Hebrew laws, so I'm, I'm, I've always been a bit confused about what, what that indicates, like what he was... Yeah, good. Uh, so just let me repeat your question and make sure I get it right. Um, Randall's asking about the text in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, to abolish the prophets, but to fulfill them. Um, and that's not something we talk a lot about, and, and we're certainly not worried about the law um, in our, in our, in our uh, culture of the church. Jesus also says that in another place, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. So he even gives a different interpretation of the law says, that, and it's right there in Matthew too, when it, you know, you, you love your neighbor, sure, but love your enemy too, which is a broader uh, uh, understanding of that, um, that text. So uh, when the fulfillment of it is, it's a way of saying the law, I think we have a, mis uh, in my opinion, we have a misconception in the Christian church, in, in the Protestant church especially, of sort of the Old Testament is the law and the New Testament is the gospel, the good news, and all this is great. We've been set free from the law. The Apostle Paul says stuff like that. That's part of where that comes from. And then Luther and Calvin really get off on that a lot. Um, I think what Jesus is saying is the law, when it was practiced, at its best was a way of life. It wasn't about this here is this absolutely strict way of doing it, and if you do all these things, then you'll be okay. But what it was was an invitation to life and community. Hosea, and, and that's expressed most clearly in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, uh, and Micah. Those prophets 
eighth century prophets, 700 years or so before Jesus, are really the ones who essentially say, y'all get caught up in the legalistic rules. It's not about that. It's about a way of life. It's about shalom. So I think that's what Jesus is saying there. In the same way that I, I think his favorite prophet was Isaiah. I might get to heaven. He's like, no, it was Micah. But um, in, for now, it's, it's, it's Isaiah. I, I think that's what he's saying is, what we see in Isaiah is this invitation to shalom, to completeness, where people have safety, a place to live, food to eat, shelter, uh, etc. I hope that helps your, your question. That was a good question. Thank you. Is there any other questions? God bless you. God loves you. Amen. See ya. Almost.